Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Beauty and the Beast Physical Therapy and Strength and Conditioning Podcast. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Ross Childs. How's it going, everyone? Glad everyone's back for another week. And uh, Adam, always a pleasure being here with you. Uh, how's everything going on this uh, wonderful Wednesday? Pretty good, pretty good. Pretty uh, relatively um, smooth week so far, so excited to jump in and get rocking, especially after last week's. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been getting a lot of great questions, a lot of great feedback. Um, a lot of people love the, the strength training program and design. I think a lot of people realize what actually goes into it. And uh, I was actually discussion, uh, discussing with a patient last night who was talking about it. I said, actually, it's easier when you know less. Right. You know, the more you know, unfortunately, just screws the whole thing up. Yep. So, you know, kudos for you for going through that video to prove it because there's, there's just a shit ton that goes into it. And no matter how great you think the program is, there's always that little part in the back of your head saying, I know I can make this better, right. but at what cost? Yeah. Because next thing you know, it's like, all right, I only have so long where people are here in class or you know, your, your individual clients don't want to work out forever. So it's like, all right, let me put this on the back burner for the next phase. Right. You know? And then it's always the planning ahead. All right, if I'm in phase one now, ooh, I like this. I'm already going to stick this in phase two. So... You know, usually as a, when we're designing programs, or at least this how, how it was when I was working with uh, strength and conditioning, uh, you know, you're always still planning two, three, four phases ahead, but the priority was always on that, that, that next phase. Yeah. You know, what's the next best step? So um, I thought that video was, was excellent to kind of break it down the way that you go through it. So today we're going to jump back into the, the common body ailments that we see. Today we're going to talk about the elbow and the ankle. You know, there's really, outside of fractures, there's really not a lot that we need to know about it. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I, I went to a con ed course probably about nine, ten years ago now. Um, one of the doctors from Concord Ortho was there, a foot surgeon. He said, you know, that there's really not a lot. Wherever your pain is in the foot, it kind of dictates what's going on. There's really not a lot there. Now, if we look at the bones of the foot, there's 26 bones, 36 joints. I mean, that's that's outside the realm of of today's talk and, and really the elbow is is the same you know really we're dealing with the elbow itself so the arm bone the forearm bone and then maybe we're talking about the two joints that actually swivel the forearm or the one joint the proximal radial ulnar joint so um, today is probably not going to go so far into the weeds like we normally do but we're going to help explain why the elbow is important for function um, but also uh, the ankle as well and, and it's hard to say, and in, in, in your opinion, you know which which one do you think is is more important? More important, probably the ankle. I mean, and you're talking because you uh, you do a lot more. You need your legs for a lot more than exactly. you need your it's, arm it's, for. It's a weight bearing joint, and right? If you look right. At it from an evolutionary standpoint, you know you can still walk and kill something and eat food with the other arm, right? You know, whereas you know you have. Two broken ankles you can still run away and survive <laughs> or two broken elbows i mean um so it, it's it'll just be interesting to go through and i, I think most people have, have probably had some type of an elbow or an ankle ailment some of it probably just fixed itself and the others people are still probably plaguing or plagued with chronicity of it uh, and, we'll, and we'll talk about why and it's a lot easier to understand and it kind of follows the same path like we talked about with shoulder bursitis or tendinopathy of the shoulder same thing with the hip uh, same thing with the knee. So hopefully we'll we'll hammer home that point and 
And again, by the end of today, you should have a solid understanding of what potentially could be the issue. Is it a big deal? And then you can do X, Y, and Z to then rehab it yourself. So now when someone comes into to the gym, let's say, and again, I always like going back to, to new members because you, you know everyone that's here and you know their how to modify. And a lot of people learn how to modify on their own just based off of the experience of you and the other coaches. But when someone comes in and says, oh, I have this, I have this ankle thing, what do you do for them? I mean, I mean again, take me through your, your approach, what's your immediate thought, and then how do you progress them from there if needed that, that day? Mm-hmm. My immediate thought is usually it ha- probably has something to do with their ankle range of motion in some way, shape, or form. I don't know how often you deal with somebody coming in and saying like, oh, I'm having an ankle issue. I tend to end up at the ankle, if that makes sense, more so than people, I think, come in saying that like, you know, you know, you meet somebody every once in a while that says, you know, oh, I have weak ankles, I've rolled my ankles 50,000 times, I've twisted them and all that sort of stuff. But usually when it comes to the ankles, I find more often it's they are having... Achilles, in quotes, Achilles pain, or, you know, there's somebody with plantar fasciitis, which we won't get off on now because we're going to end up talking about that later. But Mm -hmm. um, I'd say that outside of the person that specifically comes in and says, I consistently like roll my ankles, usually it's something else that the ankle joint is involved in that tends to be more the problem. Yeah, and I'd, I'd certainly say for, for the type of patient I see now, you know, especially coming from the gym, it, it's very rare there's an acute traumatic event where someone says, oh, I sprained my ankle and this is the problem. Usually it's, you know, I've noticed this over year, I, I've noticed this over the years. I may have sprained my ankle when I was younger a ton. Um, you know, every once in a while it still bothers me. When I jump, I do this. And, and I'd say the same thing as, as you. It, it kind of goes back to range of motion and the loss of mobility. Um, and the ankle is unique in the sense that it's a very mobile joint, but it also has to be able to control all of that motion. So I think you and I had this conversation before on the podcast, but we understand the concepts of mobility versus stability, and every joint has a primary designation. Um, so if the ankle, the, the actual connection of the shin bone and the foot bone is a mobile joint, then why do we constantly teach it stabilization exercises? You know, and that's where understanding a true definition of what we're trying to capture with stabilization, we have to define that differently than strength, you know, because everyone just assumes it's strength and it's, it's not. You can be strong and not stable, you know, meaning you can't control it, just like you can have a very mobile joint, but you can't control it. So that's the person that the ankle can't go through its full range of motion of dorsiflexion, plantar flexion during a squat. So then we see they turn their foot out or they have too much flexion at their knee or they cause some femoral acetabular impingements. That's generally how I, how I think about the ankle or that's typically what I'll, what I'll end up seeing. Now, what are some basic movement assessments that you'll do for people if they say, oh, I've had this ankle thing in the past or if you are suspecting the ankle to be a, a player in their whatever condition they're reporting? Often, I mean, you can go all the way back to just like a, a simple just see what the range of motion is on the joint. If you bring somebody in, you're manual, manually manipulating to see how far, what the what the angles are and all that stuff. For me, it might just be, it can be something as simple as, you know, 
uh, half kneeling, so like in a, a kneeling position, one knee down, the other foot in front of you. Keep your foot flat and drive your knee as far forward as you can. Okay, can you do that? Can you not? Um, you know, you can do other ones with people, you know, standing up, hands against the wall, foot flat, try and touch your knee to the wall. More often than not, um, I suppose if they come in and they're saying specifically about their ankle, then that's, I'm doing some sort of a, like assessment or test like that. More often than not, I'm, I more often am catching the ankle range of motion issues in other places. It's usually like, you know, their squats look off or something like that. And that's where, okay, so where first place I always check is the ankles because it's the easiest, it's the easiest thing to check off and the easiest thing to adjust if that is the issue. Yeah. You know, and, and, and for those of you who are listening, you know, Adam's really just basing it off of movement. You know, that, that's all he, he cares about, whereas I'll get in, I'll start moving around, I'll check what are called the accessory motions of the joint, I'll be checking muscle flexibility changes, um, but really the easiest test to do is have them squat, have them stand on one leg, do the half-kneeling dorsiflexion test, um, so I think that's a, that's a great place to start. Now, if someone comes in and they say, I've rolled my ankle a ton, you know, what, how serious do you take that? Not super serious unless they have unless they're coming in after some sort of you know obviously acute traumatic injury or something like just rolled it or they have a you know a broke they're coming back from a broken ankle or a you know something along those lines but um because that tends to be something that becomes very I mean I had issues with that when I was younger that I don't have anymore because now that I do more you know I know more I do more single leg training I do stuff that helps stabilize the joint but well, let's point out the we also don't do as much stupid shit as we want. Well, yeah, that's obviously we're, we're up there older, too. So, yeah, uh, I guess I fully believe you, but I'm also thinking, man, I, I don't do half the things that I used to. So yeah, that's now true. my injury risk is way down. <laughs> yeah, um, but for for you know, continue. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, that's fine. Uh, you know, um, what was the? I kind of lost my train of thought there. What was so? People that like roll their ankles. And yes, you yes, 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 yes. Um, you know, if if there's something that they're having like pain at the point of any any of those, you know, dorsiflexion, plantar flexion movements, then then maybe I'm adjusting some stuff. You know, if they're having like closing angle pain, you know, they come down at the bottom of a squat and when their knee drives forward, they feel a, you know, a pinch in the ankle, then maybe we're we're changing something. Or if you know, if they just cannot balance on it. Um I mean and of course there's there's levels in all of this. If somebody has a painful ankle and jumping hurts, guess what? They're not jumping right then. Or, you know, they're they're not doing maybe like reverse lunges or something that adds increased pressure on that, you know, or something along those lines. But I'm not taking it – I don't want to say like, you know, saying I don't take it seriously. I don't mean like it's not important. It's not anything like that. But it's not something I tend to worry about if that makes sense. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, and I was kind of hoping you were going to go down the path of, you know, what you look for because that essentially becomes part of their plan, you know. So, um, you know, we when I teach students at, at uh, Franklin Pierce, we talk about the concept of, of clinical decision-making. You know, what, what are we finding for information and then how do we address it? You know, what does it mean? What can it tell us uh, and how do we approach it? You know, and the way you just described it, that, that's perfect clinical decision making based off of what you're using to assess them. What is the information telling you? And then what can you do about it? You know, even when someone comes in with when what they call a bum ankle or I rolled it forever, 
single leg stance is a very, very easy test for that because then we're seeing, okay, do they just lock it out in one position? Um, do they have trouble going through supination and pronation? You know, and all that really tells us is really their side to side stability sucks. So we may want to be cautious, you know, and as you talked about jump squats, you may want to avoid those. Same thing with skaters, um, you know, but a great place to start would probably be a side lunge, yep. you know, or a lateral lunge because now it's a little more stationary. So, um, you know, that we're definitely on the, on the same page as far as that's concerned. Now, I also like how you talked about when people are coming in or that they don't actually come in with an acute traumatic event because that would be something on a, on a bigger scale. But I've had plenty of people come in, you know, or email me, call me, text me, whatever it may be. Oh, I sprained my ankle. You know, what should I do? So a lot of people, really what they're concerned with is, if, is this significant? Do I need to get an x-ray? You know, and fortunately, we have something that's called the Ottawa Ankle Rules. Um, we also have the one for the knee as well. And basically that looks at how likely does this individual have a significant problem that they actually need an x-ray. So in the ankle, it's actually split up into the two regions, actually the ankle region and then the foot. And basically, if you have tenderness in the medial malleolus or the lateral malleolus, and you can't take at least five steps immediately, okay, that's an indication you need an x-ray. So for a lot of people, when they roll, they're like, yeah, it's a little tender on the outside, but you know, I, I can limp five steps. If you can limp five steps, they state that you do not need an x-ray. Okay. In the foot, if the navicular or the cue board or the base of the fifth is tender and you can't take five steps, that's also another indication that you would need an x-ray. So when, when people come in, oh, I sprained my ankle, but they can walk five steps. I'm like, you don't need an x-ray. Okay. It's going to yep. hurt. It's going to suck, but you're going to be fine. You don't need an x-ray. It, it's not going to tell you much different than what I'm telling you right now. Um, so that, that for me is kind of a, a nice little cheat sheet. So you know, if someone does come in and say, hey, I rolled my ankle, well, can you take five steps even with a limp? Yep. All right. Well, you don't need an x-ray. So let's wait and let this heal a little bit more. Now, the elbow is a little bit different because we don't have a necessary cheat sheet for that. And when it comes to fractures, there are things you can do, places that you can push on that we can send people out. But, you know, really, unless someone falls directly on the elbow or falling on, a, on an outstretched hand, which is called a foosh injury, um, usually the elbow doesn't get too traumatically damaged. You know, it's not often that, that I've seen that, you know, and think about all the times you've, you've fallen on your elbow. I mean, more likely than the elbow, what body part's going to get damaged? Your shoulder. Your shoulder. Exactly. All that force shoots up through. People get a rotator cuff tear, they damage the glenoid, labral tear. Um, so the elbow is, is pretty resilient. But if we think about the anatomy of it, it's, it's a hinge joint, so it bends back and forth. There's no rotation there because the rotation occurs at the forearm, not the elbow. So there's really not a lot that, that goes on, um, you know, but it's a victim of repetitive stress. Mm -hmm. Very similar, and I always say, you know, the, the wrist and the, the ankle are similar together, the elbow and the knee are similar, the shoulder and the, uh, the hips are gonna be similar. So, you know, the only thing that really differs from that pattern that I just talked about is one's all weight-bearing, the lower mm -hmm. extremity compared to, to upper extremity. So if there's an issue at the wrist or at the shoulder, the elbow could also be the victim. So again, we have to start looking at the likes of golfer's elbow, which is on the inside, tennis elbow, which is on the outside, even a distal bicep strain. Um, sometimes people have a, a supinator strain, which is rare, but they'll still get it, or a pronator strain. Always look above and below. Mm -hmm. So when people come in and say, well, I've had this elbow thing, all right, well, try to straighten it, 
probably lost full extension, try to flex it, probably don't have full flexion, but then you also start to notice they probably don't have full flexion or extension all the way down at the wrist, and then they're probably shrugging because now the shoulder is trying to offset the weight of the elbow. So I think it's very easy though to kind of, I don't want to say offset their pain, but Really, if we think of everything that attaches to the elbow, as long as we can avoid some of that stress, the body can start to heal. So, Because again, it's, it's more repetitive stress over time. It's like we talked about with the knee, if anyone has patellar tendonitis or quadricep tendonitis, very rarely it's an acute traumatic event. You know, it may be acutely painful, but it's repetitive stress over time. So it's an acute on chronic flare up. Um, so the, the elbow, the elbow I, I just find if we can minimize that stress, it allows the body to continually heal. For me, it's very easy to, to say, you know, modify this, modify that, but in an area where you guys do a lot of weight-bearing stuff, mm-hmm. how do you approach someone that, that comes in and says, you know, I, I have this elbow thing, every time I straighten it, it just, it hurts. I'm usually, you know, the first thing I'm looking at, and this is fairly new, um, now this is more a now thing than before and it it partially stems from the conversations that you and i have had and when you did uh when you worked on um i keep wanting to say closing angles carrying angles um that's tends to be the first thing i look for now is what are their elbows doing when they're applying tension to it whatever form that takes whether it's a farmer's carry where they're holding weight low or whether it's a push-up hold um and then, and then I, I'll check that, and if that needs to be, oftentimes that will help correct the problem. I've had people that have had elbow pain, and then when you watch them do a push-up, you can tell their elbows are beyond 180 degrees, and you just tell them to put a little bit of a soft bend in there, you know. And the way that I'll often see that is the thing that I notice is that they don't tend to feel it. They feel it after. They feel it when they're picking their they're picking the their hand up. Like when they're like let's say somebody's doing a push-up hold or a high plank hold and they don't feel it until they take the pressure off the off that hand. Mm-hmm. And that's where like okay, it might be it's probably a carrying angle thing and so oftentimes if I just tell them okay, put a very slight bend in the elbow, that'll help. So for the for the people that are listening Adam, if you don't mind, what what exactly is a carrying angle? So carrying angle is the angle of the the elbow joint. Whether that's so what I, I I don't know if you want to give the technical. So the way I think about it is the angle of the joint when you're at, you know, full extension yeah, or so full straight when you fully straightened the arm essentially. Yeah. So everyone has a natural carrying angle, females more than males and and from an evolutionary standpoint they stated this was because women have uh, wider hips. So if you look at someone in standing, a woman's lower arm, so the the forearm bones will actually angle away from the body. And sometimes people have it more significant on both sides or they could have it more significant on one side compared to the other. Now, when there's an increased angle like that, it's also called a valgus angle at the elbow, it shortens the tissue on one side and lengthens the tissue on the other. Or to think of it another way, it closes off the joint on one side and then opens up the joint on the other. So people with an increased carrying angle have too much stress on one side because it's closed and then too much stress on the other because it's open. So it's playing tug of war the whole time. And Adam and I have dealt with with some members that have had um, carrying angle issues and it just sounded like 
the person was moving too much and it was because they were trying to compensate for that, that carrying angle. Um, you know, for me, it was merely just suggestion because I've never seen this person before um, and, and it ended up being right. So, you know, generally those people with carrying angles generally hyperextend, so meaning they bend backwards and then they lock out their joints. So, and I think that's what you were alluding to. They can, they can stabilize, but they lock out the joints and oftentimes it looks like their elbows are swiveling in and forward. Um, and then when they unlock, they lose stability and that's generally when they start to feel pain. I've seen nerve issues as well, especially for females that are super flexible. They pinch the funny bone nerve and then the next thing you know, they get numbness and tingling into their ring and pinky finger. So um, that's just a brief description of, of carrying angles. But again, it's also something that Adam has to pay attention to when he's going through any type of weight-bearing exercise with, with the class um, or any type of, of stability exercise for, for the upper extremity. So um, how often do you find that posture plays into someone's arm pain? So whether it's shoulder, elbow, or wrist. I mean, it seems relatively um, important in my, you know, estimation. It, I don't know. To be honest with you, I guess I hadn't really thought about it in terms of like, like rolling back the posture to the elbow. So I'm not sure how to answer exactly. But I mean, I guess depending on how, you know, whatever, how they're standing, how they're, you know, if they're more... Um, Lord Otic, more whatever, and they're more in that kind of like external rotation. They're more liable to have those increased carrying angles and yeah. and all that kind of stuff. I don't know. I actually I hadn't really thought about it working its way back like that. But well, well, the reason I bring that up is because this is this is where I'll see, and, and we can apply this to the lower extremity too. But in physical therapy, we use the concept of regional interdependence, which is really just the kinetic chain. It's just a fancy name. And it's basically how do other body parts affect, you know, a current pain syndrome or dysfunction. And there's a lot of research to prove that tightness in the thoracic spine is actually found in individuals with wrist and elbow pain. Okay. So if we think about the thoracic spine, just using the mobility stability continuum, we have the thoracic spine, which is supposed to be mobile, mostly with rotation and extension. And then we have the scapulothoracic joint, which should be stable, control motion. And we have the glenohumeral joint, which is mobile, and then the elbow joint, which should be stable. Well, if that thoracic spine tightens down, now that scapulothoracic joint, the shoulder blade, now has to become mobile, which then changes the glenohumeral joint to now a stable joint, and then the elbow has to become more mobile. So it reverses that trend. So, you know, it's never as simple as saying, oh, it's the elbow problem, check the shoulder or the wrist. You know, you have to go even higher than that. You have to go thoracic spine, maybe even cervical spine. Um, but the thoracic spine is definitely something that anyone who comes in with an upper extremity condition, I'm at least assessing it to make sure it's, it's not a contributing factor. So uh, I would say, even though the research doesn't prove it, I would say posture plays a lot into it because the problem is with research is, is we can't prove habit. Mm -hmm. So if someone sits, I had, a, I had a patient come in just the other day, just yesterday, and she talks about how she's been sitting at a desk for 40 years. I don't care who you are, 40 years of doing the same thing, your body's gonna become really, really good at it. Mm. I don't care how much you offset it, you know? And she talked about how, you know, her right shoulder can sometimes be an issue and, you know, could potentially the, the mouse using the mouse be an issue. You know, it's like, 
Yeah, because mm -hmm. now your shoulder's abducted, your shoulder's protracted, uh, shoulder blade is protracted, you're using your upper trap and you're tightening down your pec the whole time. Research doesn't prove that. You know, all research looks at is the, the angle or whatever curvature of your spine and is there a, because we can't infer cause and effect in research, is there a high probability or likelihood of correlation? Um, so those are the limitations with research, but uh, anecdotally, yeah, posture plays a huge role in all this, you know, and even just think about it from a biomechanical standpoint, because you took functional anatomy. Mm. So if I'm rolled forward, you know, essentially that's going to bring my arm into slight flexion. Mm -hmm. You know, that's going to tighten down the coracobrachialis, but also it tightens down the brachialis, yep. which also distally attaches to the elbow, which if I shorten a muscle from here, it's going to shorten from here. So now, as I walk around like this, I'm just holding my arm like this all day, so I'm doing an isometric bicep curl all day long. Right. Now just imagine if I'm holding something there, even as light as a phone. Now it's resistance training over time. So I, I always, it's, you know, get people back into a good posture. You know, even just letting it stretch like that is going to be good for them because it's not going to be super aggressive. But that's why people will get biceps tendonitis, not because the actual bicep tendon is the problem, but because now the biceps working at the shoulder and the elbow, right. and it's a lot easier to protect here than here, you know. So it's it's just rare that I've seen distal bicep strains, which is why I didn't want to talk about it today. Um, the only time I've ever really seen it, or a rupture for that matter, is a gentleman went to lift a piano and snap, snap. Ooh, yeah. Yeah. See you later. So um, if it's a proximal bicep, meaning close to the shoulder, usually there was something associated with it: torn labrum, torn rotator cuff. Um, so we won't get off. We won't get off track with that. Now, we talked about the specifics of of walking, and that's why the ankle is important. And for you guys listening, I apologize we're jumping back and forth, but you know, again, these these are the two body parts we wanted to focus on. From a performance standpoint, why is the ankle important? So we know walking in general, just for all of us, it's important. But from a performance standpoint, what does the the ankle do for the lower extremity. I mean, there's, there's. I'm sure you're going to get there, and I don't want to lead you there because I want to, I want you to, to mental gymnastics your way through it. Um, but with sport, mm -hmm. why is the ankle important? Well, because you have. I mean, you have to have the that stability side to side. Mm -hmm. I mean, we know that. That's the that's this. We've talked about that. That's a simple. That's kind of a simple answer, and that you know makes all the sense in the world. But yeah. you also have to be able to move that ankle joint in order to produce force and essentially force the ground away. There you go. That's when, exactly what I was looking for. When you're sprinting, when you're you know doing it, any limitation in the range of motion in the ankle is going to limit the amount of power that you can create moving in any direction. Yeah. Um, so if you have, and it's funny because this is something that, you know, you were working on my cat. I mean, you know, that was months ago now. I'm sure that they're still just as tight as they were then. But... I was having foot pain, and I know, and my explosiveness was going down, and it, you know, weight plays into that, and all that sort of stuff. But the inability of me to get full movement at that ankle joint was cutting down my ability to get a true sprint, essentially, mm. a true push off, and um, and I'll see it in uh, in training sometimes too. A real simple, like a real, a way that I'll, I'll notice it is we do, uh, we call them pogos. It's just, you know, yep. it, it, I don't know if there's a particular An name for it. Ankle hops. Yeah, whatever you want to call it. Basically just like little flicks away with the toe and popping off the ground. 
and you tell somebody, you watch somebody do it, and you can see that they get like this, this little, you know, I'm not expecting them to get a foot off the ground, but like it's a real small range of motion with the ankle. And then as soon as you tell them, okay, push away with the toes, get that last little flick the ground away. And you, as soon as people start doing that last little flick, you, you see them like, you know, pop up and there's almost a float and then a retraction, pop up and almost a float. And so if you don't have the ability to create that full range of motion, then you lose power. Yeah. Do you remember what that cycle is called from X-Fizz? Oh, no. It's been a long time. Stretch, stretch shortening cycle. Oh, stretch shortening cycle. I was thinking, okay. I was thinking something more specific to that. No, but that's exactly what you're describing because they can, they can load the tissue eccentrically. And as we talked about last week, there's the, the process of taking that potential energy and then turning it into kinetic energy. So it loads the tendon and then it applies it, you know, and that's, it's, it's an elastic recoil, you know, and for your calves, because they were so tight, you know, it's not that you couldn't produce the force. It's that you, you lost some of the elastic recoil because there was not enough movement. So we get in there, we loosen it up a little bit and you're, for anyone who hasn't seen Adam's calves, they're, they're, he has huge calves. They're very muscular. Uh, it, it well-defined. He's never going to have a soft, supple calf. It's just not going to happen. So what we're looking for is, does the density of the calf feel the same on both sides? You know, there's probably going to be knots there, but are the knots similar on both sides? You know, we have, we have to remember that, you know, you're, I mean, especially when we're standing upright against gravity we're not, we don't want our calves to go supple, you know, we, right. yeah, we, we want to be able to have them nice and firm to hold us upright, but you know, that you know, we, I look for that in a lot of people, it's because the harder they work, they just have maxed themselves out and they just lose the ability to do stuff, you know, not because they lost it, it's because they've been working so hard for so long, we actually got to give them a break. And that, that's essentially what was happening to, to your calves. You know, and the fact I've seen you doing some, some box jumps as of, of late, you know, you're getting that stretch shortening cycle, you're loading the tendons, which we need mechanical loading to, for cell turnover. You know, we were talking about that before the podcast and it helps you to attenuate stress, but it also helps to repair. And that, that's, that's an important function that I think is, is often lost. Now, we talked about the importance from, a, from an athletic standpoint of the ankle. What about for the elbow? For the elbow, uh, it's, it's stability. It's, yep, keep going. From a performance standpoint, yeah. So stability, being able to transfer force through that joint to whatever the implement is whether it's a golf club whether it's a i mean i always i always tend to think baseball just because it's the most like true form of what's happening through the shoulder and through the wrist but um but yeah it being able to transfer force without lateral uh i don't know shear is the right word i can't lateral force whatever yeah could say that without over the top lateral force i should say more than it it should and if you think of throwing, for that matter, or javeling, you know, think about the position, how we cock the body back, shoulders and external rotation, mm-hmm. elbow flexion. Mm-hmm. And then as we come through, we get internal rotation, but we're increasing the lever arm to produce force generation and torque as the elbow starts to extend. So, you know, uh, again, from a, from a hunting standpoint, I always love to go back to this, from an <laughs> evolutionary standpoint, not only are ankles going to help us, transmit force generate and transmit forces to run after what we're trying to kill but it's going to help us generate forces from the ground when we need stability to actually transmit it through our core Mm -hmm. to then help us throw the the spear or whatever we're 
using to right. shoot at the animal. Um, but the elbow is really the last line of defense because the wrist isn't going to do much. Right. The wrist really fine tunes the implement or in implements the object. Um, but the elbow is what transmits that that uh, last little bit of force um, attenuation, if we want to call it that instead. So, you know, and that carries over nicely to, to even shooting a basketball for that matter. You know, you lock and load at the free throw, throw line. You start to generate force through your, your legs, even though most really good basketball players don't don't use their legs with a free throw, but just follow along with me. But then when we start to get our shoulder into flexion, you know, really we start to initiate from our core, the rotator cuff, and then we use the elbow basically like a catapult. And that creates that, that stabilization. And then the wrist really is what spins the ball, um, but it really doesn't create much as far as force is concerned. So, um, yeah, we talked a lot about the, the importance of function. I didn't expect that to go that deep. We did a good job on that one. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was great. All right, so let's work through some of our, our more common conditions that we'll see. And these, you know, I went through and picked conditions that I think you and I would have both seen, regardless whether it's on the strength and conditioning end or from a, from a rehab uh, standpoint. Now, how often do people come in and say, you know what, I have tennis elbow? Uh, it depends. It, not super often. I tend to see it more, this may sound stupid, but I tend to see it more on like current clients when golf season or whatever rolls around. Um, you know, some people will mention it like offhandedly, but I can think of a few people specifically that it just comes and goes all the time. Yeah. You know, there never appears to be one event that causes it. Right. You know, I mean... When I was working at a job five or six years ago, uh, we did a lot of workers' comp stuff, and, and you know we were working near a lot of the factories in the in the lakes region. And just that high amount of repetitive stress eventually got to that sticking point where it, it felt like something would pop. Um, so that's an acute on chronic flare-up. But again, it's for the people that that just your average person's not going to get that amount of repetitive stress, so they won't have that one event. But it will start getting sore, and they'll start seeing, oh, it's sore, but. It went away, and then the next time, oh, this became more sore and took like a week to go away, and then oh, it became sore again. You know, it's been three weeks and it's still bothering me, and now it's to the point I can't pick up anything. Well, that didn't just show up. No, you know that that's been weeks building on end. So, you know, Adam talked about golf season. You know, we do have what's called lateral elbow pain. So the outside of the elbow, which is uh, the common term, is is uh, tennis elbow. Whereas the inside of the elbow is golfer's elbow. And really the biggest difference between the two, other than location, is your wrist extensors. So the muscles that tip your wrist backwards all attach into the common extensor tendon. And they pull on the, the lateral epicondyle. So tennis elbow, lateral side. And then for medial, it's the forearm flexors. They go into the common flexor tendon and attach into the bone. If we purely just think about the number of times that we grip in everyday life, grab a refrigerator door, grab the door to open it up, grab our bags, grab anything. Who even knows how many times a day that we're doing something like that? You know, gripping the steering wheel. Um, it really makes sense as to why we have such repetitive stress injuries. You know, it, it does not baffle me. Now, the way we go about treating it in the medical community is ask backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll, we'll talk about that, that in just a minute. Um, but let's say someone comes in and, and says, you know, I have this, this outside elbow thing that's bothering me. You know, I've had it before. 
knowing that you do a lot of upper body stuff in your, your classes and you design into your programs, what are some simple modifications that a person can make to limit the stress on their, on their elbow? Uh, so again, we talked about, you know, creating like a soft bend in the elbow. If, if extent, if the arm being straight causes problems, um, it can be, you know, what's their, I don't know, these two tend to fit together, but what's the positioning of their shoulder in a certain, certain, um, scenario, um, whether it be like a push up and they're super internally or externally rotated or a plank or something like that. Um, Oh, what was it? What was I just thinking? I lost my train of thought. Uh, Oh my goodness. Well, not some super like repetitive, like we do skier and stuff. Nothing that creates like fast explosive. Um, Oh man. Like straightening extension. Yeah. Um, checking other things. It's like there's a there's a specific client that I can think of that for a while every single time we did um, like shot put uh, med ball shot put that explosive uh, press I guess she'd have elbow pain on her right side. Yeah. Well, we eventually got it to the point where we kind of realized that she was she was trying to do too much push with the arm. We focus more on driving the ground away with that offset, creating more power from the hips. And I actually had her kind of, um, not compound, when you shorten something up, why am I having such a hard time? Compact, kind of mm. create a more compact movement. She wasn't reaching as much, yeah. kept the arm in a little bit closer. And it took a lot of that away. Cause he, so are they doing too much with the elbow? Uh, I don't know. There's all kinds of different stuff. Exactly. Multi-variables. But one of the big things that I find that can help at least mitigate it is forearm position. Because I tend to find that when the palm is facing down, when you're in a pronated position, elbow slightly flex, that's where a lot of people live. You know, and think about like a dumbbell row. If you gave someone a uh, half kneeling dumbbell row, so Mm -hmm. they're, they're on a bench. Most people, even if you tell them to pull the weight straight up with a neutral grip, they're still going to turn it in slightly. Yep. You know, they feel stronger, helps the shoulder because it makes them feel stronger. But then that starts to wear down that area at the elbow. You know, especially when they come back down out of it, it causes that eccentric loading. So keeping the wrist in neutral, I find, is, is a very safe thing to start them off right away. So if you have them doing any type of, say, like a face pull during a warm-up, you know, instead of having them try to produce any type of rotation at the at the forearm, you know, maybe you just have them do like a, a band pull apart instead. You know, still working on scapular retraction, and then as it goes away, you can add in that rotation part. So I find that that's super important for a lot of people is just changing up that grip. Now we also have to look at the term tendonitis. You know, because again, when we look at you know the end of the word where it's itis, that infers that's an, there's an inflammatory process that that's occurring. When, when that happens, we assume that ibuprofen, cortisone, things like that are going to work. If that were the case, these inflammatory conditions should be gone in about three weeks at the most, and they should not be recurring. So what we actually want to call them now is a tendinopathy, just like we've called before a tendinosis, which infers a degradation of tissue over time, a lack of blood flow. So the research shows 
we should not be avoiding these things. Mm-hmm. And this is where a lot of people will ask, well, what about those wraps that can go around your forearm? That's to dissipate force off the tendon. I'm okay with that in the short term, but it's not a long-term fix. So avoiding, avoiding activity due to a tendinosis degrades the tissue more. It weakens it. And when people, they used to do it this way, they don't any, anymore, they would actually put people in a sling, they don't use it. We know the effects of immobilization on tendons, it shortens them. Mm-hmm. So now what's going to happen to a tendon when you lengthen it back out? It's going to hurt. Attempt to lengthen it back out. Yeah, yeah it's going to hurt. It's going to be sensitive because it's not used to it now. And that's it's, it's an adaptation response. So it's a shortening adaptation. So that's why a lot of people will get that pain when they fully extend. Now, if we actually load someone's tendon and bring them through that full range, that's one of the ways that we go about rehabbing this type of a, a, a condition. So it's going to hurt. We cannot stress that enough. It hurts. And full tissue healing for a tendinopathy can take 12 to 14 weeks. Now, does it mean it's going to feel the same for 12 to 14 weeks? No. The first three weeks are the worst. Next three weeks aren't that bad. By week nine, you should feel good. By week 12, it should feel sore, but it takes a lot to piss it off. You know, and that, that's very, very common that, that we'll see that. And it's because it's tendon mostly. You know, there's really no bony changes. Um, you know, it's not like uh, uh, outside ankle sprain, which we'll talk about. Uh, just the tendon's been overloaded for so long, we got to give it a chance to heal. You know, we can do that with, with using it. So um, members of the gym should not be avoiding class for elbow tendonitis or, or whatever it may be. So hopefully, hopefully a lot of them will say, oh, look, I don't have to. <laughs> so now the next one on our list is, is bursitis. You know, and, and typically we only see this in, in older adults. And again, if it's a true bursitis, have you ever seen elbow bursitis? I haven't actually. It's called olecranon bursitis. It's real funky looking. It looks like there's an alien growing off of the back of their elbow. So we have the olecranon, which is in the back of the elbow. And they just get this huge bubble off the end of it. The olecranon starts, to, or the uh, the bursa starts to swell, and just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Sometimes it can even become come infected. If they have that, it probably needs to be drained, you know, and they'll probably get it down to a smaller size because that can actually impair elbow function. They're not going to want to straighten it. If they flex it all the way, they're going to cause more stress into the area. Um, but it's it's a common one that especially older males will get if they have a type of job where they're constantly leaning on their elbows. Um, so that I usually recommend that people get that taken care of. Usually they start with draining it, but you can still train in the mid ranges. Right. So I think that would certainly be fine. Now now the reason that that I bring this up is because oftentimes people will have lateral elbow pain, tennis elbow, and they'll say it's a bursitis. Now, we do have a bursa that sits underneath, but it's two completely different diagnoses. So we have lateral elbow pain, which is on the epicondyle. Olecranon bursitis is in the back of the elbow, and it's it's very, 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 very uncomfortable. So, um, you know, and, and then, you know, when we start looking at another common, and I didn't put it down, but I just thought of it because we talked about um, funny the funny bone nerve. You know, that's another common thing that I'll see. People bend their elbows too long and they'll say, oh, I have numbness and tingling in my in my fingers. You know, think about 
you know, laying in bed at night, maybe you're looking at your phone for a little too long or reading on an iPad, Kindle, whatever it may be, all of a sudden your ring finger and pinky finger goes numb. And then all we do is intuitively, we just straighten Straight our arm out. You know, we take the pressure off of the nerve. So no, it's not carpal tunnel. It's called cubital tunnel syndrome. So is there anything that we can do about that? Yeah, don't stay in prolonged flex positions. You know, that's the easiest thing to do. And I joke about that. But really that has to do because when we're in bed, usually our heads flex forward. Usually we're rounding forward a little bit and then we're flexing. So all we're doing is taking up the anatomy of the nerve so it becomes irritated. Um, but even things like a doorway stretch is good for opening that up. Now, one of the things we'll do with people is called the nerve glide. If you just tip your hand out to the side, so what I'm doing is I'm straightening my arm out to the side at shoulder height, and I'm gonna tip my wrist backwards. This is gonna stretch the median nerve. In this position, I feel numbness and tingling right now, and I'm okay with it because it goes away when I come out of it. Now, this is just called the neural mobilization. I'm just getting the nerve to glide back and forth. We can do that same thing to make sure that our, our nerves are moving properly. And I know a lot of people that will actually do specific nerve mobilizations, you know, whether it's the leg, the sciatic nerve, or the cubital tunnel or carpal tunnel, to ensure that the nerves never become a problem. You know, and, and if it's done correctly, it, it does work very well. But that's that's another common thing that, that I'll see a, a lot of people will will suffer from. Not so much carpal tunnel, but, but cubital tunnel. So it's very specific. Um, and you've probably seen that, that as well. People will probably say they get, you know, I've had this numbness and tingling when I put my, my elbow on the table while mm -hmm. they're just compressing it, or you yourself may have had it. So that's another very common one that we'll see. Now, we're going to, that's really the, what we need to know about the elbow or what we want you guys to know about the elbow. Again, it's not, it's not one of the sexier joints that we talk about. So, you know, it's not going to be as in-depth. Now, from, from an ankle standpoint, what are the two most common conditions? So, what are the two common pathologies that people usually report that they've had in the foot and ankle region at one time, especially if they're runners? Uh, I was going to say, well, plantar fasciitis, yep. and then uh, usually uh, the only other one I hear significant that I hear consistently is is Achilles. Achilles, yeah, correct. So, and, and everyone's probably had one of them at one time, even if they didn't realize it. Now, when we look at Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis, we have to start considering the mechanism. Now, with Achilles tendonitis, we're dealing with a tendon. So, it's really no different than what we talked about with the elbow. The plantar fascia connects from the back of your heel or the undersurface of your heel and then spreads out to all five toes and it helps to maintain the integrity of the arch. And the plantar fascia also pulls tight when your big toe is pushing off. So it, it, it's a stretch recoil for propulsion. So it helps with walking. It breaks down over time with, with um, abnormal stress on normal tissue. And I've seen, I have a 11 year old patient right now that has plantar fasciitis, you know, and that's, that's unheard of. I mean, that, that should just not happen. I mean, she hasn't even hit her big growth spurt yet. Uh, but you see people in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s that have had it at least at least once. What, if you had to think, I know what the research says, but if you had to guess what was the, the one common risk factor between those two conditions, what do you think it would be? Between uh, Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis. 
Well, lack of ankle range of motion or calf tightness, sir. Bingo. Yeah. That's that's the exact two things, number one and number two. So let me let me ask you a question. Tell me <clears throat> if I I want I've been thinking about this and I just want to know if I'm I'm incorrect in this thinking. So we know that plantar fasciitis come, can come from limited ankle range of motion. Now, is it because you can't get full plantar flexion or dorsiflexion, whichever whichever way you're you're unable to get the full extension in? And then your midfoot and your toe are trying to do are trying to create more force on a push off because you can't actually extend that joint. Can that be part of the? Is that is that the reason why those muscles become one, so inflamed and so one, one of the reasons tight for over it. time? Yep. Okay, absolutely. You know, it's definitely one of the reasons for it. Also, when you start to look at a lack of ankle range of motion, you know, you talked about the foot. We tend to get more motion at the the mid tarsal joint as mm-hmm. well. And then that changes the the big toe, the, the the push-off joint in the big toe. And then that changes how much the actual plantar fascia can actually stretch. Because it, it, most of our, especially our lower extremity muscles, get a natural stretch when we're walking. Because it's a, it's a, it's more of a, a passive, or I won't say passive. It's an eccentric elongation, mm-hmm. you know, and then it, it's like an elastic. You know, it pulls tight and then it pulls back. So it's the same thing. But when we have that ankle dysfunction, we no longer get that natural recoil. So like every other part of the body, we start storing the accumulation of stress into that plantar fascia. Now it has to maintain the arch as we're standing directly over it. So now you're dealing with something that is accumulating stress. You have the effects of gravity pushing down on you plus body weight. And that creates micro trauma. And then over time, your body can't keep up with the healing process. So then unfortunately causes dysfunction and whatever else we want to call it, and then that leads to the pain. Um, if someone has a big toe that doesn't bend backwards, minimum 50 degrees, and for runners it should be 70 or greater, um, they're, it's very likely they're going to develop plantar fasciitis because of that. Now we also look at it from the standpoint of the tight muscles. Tight calf muscles pull us into plantar flexion. That will also assist in limiting our dorsiflexion, then we lose that mobility so it depends which angle you want to look at it. Again, I'm not so much of a this caused this, you know, right, right, right. chicken or the egg, you know, you'll, you'll get driven down that rabbit hole all day long. Um, why not address both? So we know tight, tight calf muscles and limited ankle dorsiflexion is both a risk factor for Achilles tendonitis and plantar fasciitis. Address both of them, you know, be done with it. You know, generally, you know, just like in your calves, think back to the first time I grabbed into the medial gastroc head. Yeah. It's very, very sensitive, you know, and think about how much force and uh, explosion that muscle goes through when you're doing something quick and fast. It's very, very strong, you know, and then we also need to consider, you know, what's happening at the ankle itself as you're going through and trying to do a box jump. Well, you very rapidly have to go through plantar flexion to push off, but then you have to get the foot back under you to land appropriately. So now if you don't have that appropriate landing mechanism, you just smush the plantar fascia, right? You know, and, and I find it happens a lot to people that are heel strikers when running, because um, they end up swinging their foot. They don't actually push off, and then they just mush the bottom of their foot the whole time, and you know that may create some type of a pronation compensation or supination for that matter. It doesn't matter to me because they they both pose a problem. You know, excessive pronation and excessive supination. Um, you know, one there's not enough. There's not enough stability in the plantar fascia, and the other one, there's too much. So either one breaks it down over time. Um, 
But it, these are things that people can take care of. So if someone comes into you and says, I, I have this plantar fascia thing, you know, what's, what's the easiest recommendation you can give to them? Cavs. Knock, hitting it with a lacrosse ball, um, foam roller, you yeah. know, whatever. Uh, I will usually give that, and then if it's continuing down the line, then it's like lacrosse ball on the bottom of the foot or something like that. But calves are always the first place I go with Exactly. That. So if you guys are experiencing Achilles tendonitis pain, or if you're dealing with plantar fasciitis, using a foam roller or lacrosse ball on the bottom of your foot and into the calf muscles, although extremely painful, is going to be very important for you. You know, we're not going to lie about that foam rolling in, in lacrosse ball. Any type of self massage hurts. Exercise does too if you're not used to it. So you have to get used to it. You have to decrease that sensitivity. But you got to keep up with it. You got to let your body adapt and get get used to it. So um, again, my recommendation is if you have an active flare up. You got to do it every day. Consistency is the key. You know, even if it's five minutes, it's better than nothing. So, and then when you get better, you purposely want to back off because the goal is to not have to do this stuff forever. You know, if you want to, that's different. But the need to, it shouldn't have to be every every single day. So, um, how big are you on the idea of of calf stretching? It depends. I know everybody's sick of that answer, but it's pretty much the answer I'm always going to give. Because I was—it's the only answer there needs to be, right? Because I was—I—I I, I was thinking about this before. I didn't know if we were going to get back and talk about any sort of like stretching type stuff. But like for example, if we're going to do calf stretching, the way that I'm going to do calf stretching is, for example, what I talked about earlier. It's you know you're in a half kneeling position, so your back knees down and your foot is flat, tacked to the floor, and you're driving your knee forward. Whether that or or you're standing, driving the knee forward, or something along those mm-hmm. lines. Something that's more about ankle range of motion than it is about stretching the calf. Um, and I'm not doing it until after I've already tried to release it in other ways. Sure. So, so it sounds like you're you're doing more of an end range mobility exercise. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I don't do it that often. I, yeah. I don't know that if I don't know that I should be against it. I don't know if that's. But I don't do it often. Usually, I'm focusing more on work with some sort of manual release type thing. And maybe I'm working some ankle range of motion, but I'm usually not doing a ton in the way of of stretching per se. Sure. Well, when you look at, at the systematic reviews on static stretching, and, and consistently it shows that static stretching does not prevent injuries. You know, And part of the reason for that is because static stretching can just, it doesn't offset the risk of the activities that we're currently doing, like mm-hmm. running and pounding pavement for 10 miles, static stretching is not going to offset that. Now, with that said, there are some physiologic changes that occur when we're stretching if we can get our body to actually relax. So that that I'm okay with. Plus, we have to think it's, it's also stretching is not necessarily muscle tightness per se, but what they're finding out now is it, it's basically um, neural tone to passive tension. You know, that, that's just a bunch of fancy terms. And all it just means is that your your body's holding this amount of, of tension. So if someone has a true deficit and there's an asymmetry side to side, I'm, I'm okay with stretching. You know, and, and for me, it, it helps to draw awareness to the body. Mm-hmm. Because if I have someone stretch their left gastroc, I really don't feel it. Well, stretch your right. Oh, I feel it. All right. Well, we want it to feel like the left one. Now they always have something to go back and compare it to. So I think I'm okay with it, but 
you know, if someone said to me, you can use a self-massage, a dynamic warm-up, or static stretching, and you can only pick two, which two are you picking? I'm going to say self-massage and dynamic warm-up. Yeah, so that's what I was going to say too. Yep. You know, and, and the research does show it is better to do before activity prior to, to after. Um, static stretching, if you're going to do it, doesn't matter when you do it as long as you do it at some point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there is there is some importance to it. You know, they, they've even shown foam rolling or self-massage prior to a dynamic warm-up increases your range of motion in your joints and, and doesn't have any deficits on your performance. And that's the big thing, the big controversy with, like, foam rolling. Mm-hmm. You know, they talk about, but it doesn't improve your performance. Well, it doesn't take any... It doesn't take away from performance. So I think we need to also recognize that Want me to that fix as, that as well. argument in one one uh, quote? Yes. The best ability is availability. Yeah. It, even, if, even if it took away, even if foam rolling took away 0.5% of your performance, even if it took away 25% of your performance somehow, which it doesn't, it doesn't, by the way, it does not. Even if it took 25% away from your performance, if foam rolling makes it so that you can train to your full potential 25% more, then you're still coming out on top, even if it were scientifically proven that foam rolling took away from your performance. Yeah. If you can't train, you can't perform. It's that simple. Yeah, I mean, I, I just... One of the things I hate about the, the physical therapy field is, is they want everything to be so black and white. You yeah. know, and, and that's, that's... I don't know. I'm always in the it depends crowd. You know, again, when they say... Oh, foam rolling doesn't improve performance. Well, great. You know, my mind instantly goes to it's not taking away from performance. And anecdotally, I've just seen too much benefit from it to not do it. You know, people get up. Oh, it sucks, but I feel better. That's all I need to hear. Great. You know, I myself have have used foam rolling over the years quite successfully. You know, and I've seen no no negatives from it. You know, the only time where where people shouldn't foam roll is if they have some type of a an active, you know, vascular condition that we need to be aware of, open wounds, you know, a fracture, things along those lines. But even then, there's the difference between an absolute contraindication versus a precaution. You know, you just have to know what you're looking for. So um, it's just too beneficial. So, yeah, at the end of the day, I think an easy rehab approach to a lot of these conditions that we talked about, and, and it can be used for the elbow as well, you know, again, get in there. You need to loosen it up with the foam rolling or self-massage. And then you want to do some type of active loading. And it doesn't matter if we call it dynamic warm-up, dynamic stretching. I don't care what you call it. You've got to get it moving. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and the elbow can be a little bit tricky because, again, really it just flexes and extends. But you know, if you were going to give someone a dynamic warm-up to, to focus on loading the ankle, what are, what are three easy things that people could do right now? Calf raises or pogos. I mean, if you want a specific, I, I always, we use ladders. Yep. Um, and then single leg deadlifts, split squats, anything that creates some sort of stability in that joint. And Adam just spit that out in less than 11 seconds. So it can be that simple, you know, and then based on if someone comes in, they're a little more apprehensive, uh, or maybe they have a little bit more irritability. All you have to do is just make it a little more dynamic or uh, static, Mm -hmm. you know, and then if someone comes in, they have no issues, but you know, you want to load them. Throw everything at them. You know, the, we don't know what the body's capable of until we uh, un, until we push it. Yep. So we will always do whether it's if we're going to do some sort of, I think a jumping or sprinting. It's 
almost always the warm-up involves foam rolling the calves. It's usually like the first, one of the first things we do. Foam rolling the calves, and then the warm-up ends with some sort of, again, pogos, calf raises, ideally pogos, but if somebody can't stand that ballistic force, then, you know, just foot to the floor calf raises up on your toes as far as you can. And then ideally we're trying to get, we do something in the, you know, like a continued warm up or something before mm. we do any sort of that, like sprinting or, you know, running or whatever, or jumping. So, so really the, you know, and, and I believe as, as we were talking, um, yesterday, you know, this was probably going to be the last body region one that we'll do mm-hmm. just cause we've seen the cover, the important stuff, but hopefully over the last couple episodes, you know, you guys really have listened to that it, it, it's these things don't have to be serious and there are things that you can do to rehab it let's get our range of motion back let's make sure that we get full functional strength and then we optimize our function and we get back range of motion by foam rolling stretching dynamic warm-up loading the tissue you know if someone has an ankle problem and they say well i can't run it's like nope outside of a fracture you can run you just have to limit the amount that you're doing. There's a certain threshold that your body is willing to give you right now. And if you grossly exceed that, your body will yell at you. you know? So as long as we stay within those zones and slow, uh, slowly show the body what it can do, we'll continually do more and more. And you notice he said grossly exceed. You can still exceed slightly. I mean, that's how you progressively, that's how you get stronger. That's how you get better at running. You got to expect that it's going to be a little bit tender from time to time. Yeah. But never should be debilitating. Exactly. And, you know, and it really comes down to load versus capacity. If you load it appropriately, your body builds up capacity. If you load it inappropriately, being too much or too little, your body has no reason to change. So, you know, once you find the appropriate recipe, all you have to do is just tweak the ingredients and you can have continued orthopedic success performance whatever you choose to call it so all right and it looks like we touched upon everything uh that we had written down anything that you want to want to touch upon no i think i'm good i mean this this was a pretty thorough one it's more thorough than i thought we were going to get into for the uh the elbow and the and the ankle all right so you know hopefully we gave you guys some pearls of wisdom you know every week we try to come in give you guys something that you can work on so that you can better yourselves and at the end of the day we want you guys happy and healthy and and you know performing at your best um so as always you know once once this is up um you can go into the links at the bottom if you have any questions you can reach out to the email it goes to to adam and if it needs to come to me um, he sends it over to me there's also a link for my Wellevate page. So if anyone's interested in supplementation or have any questions about um, health or anything like that, certainly reach out to me on, on that. Uh, I also have my Ask Ross Anything, which is in my Facebook group. So uh, on Thursday nights, people come in with questions about certain conditions, certain aspects of exercise and health, or just things that you're curious about. Um, and it's just time to, to sit back, relax, and, and I see how well I can answer the questions for you. Um, but Adam will get this posted. Um, we'll start um, brainstorming for next week. If you guys have any suggestions or you know there's any topics you want us to cover, you know please let us know because again we want to give you guys you know the information that, that we feel is best best suited for you. So uh, with that said, you guys have a wonderful week and we'll talk to you soon. See you later guys.